So John chapter 6, verses 60, reading down to verse 71. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this is your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we come now to studying it, that you would speak to us. Lord, you would help me communicate this message that I've prepared. I pray that I would preach accurately. And Lord, you would give us ears to hear. Pray that our hearts would be open to your word and you would have your way among your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled this sermon, Understanding True Discipleship. Understanding True Discipleship. The verse that should be most familiar to us in this portion of scripture that we've just read, if we've been tracking and if we've been in these studies would be verse 66 because verse 66 is a startling verse as a result of this many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore and since the start of our study through John 6 we've kept this verse in the forefront of our minds because this verse has been serving as a landmark as to what the major theme of this chapter is And the major theme of this chapter is to shed light on the heartbreaking reality that there are people who at one point in time follow Jesus, they attach themselves to Jesus, but as time goes on, they end up falling away and turning their backs on him. They withdraw. And when we started this chapter, we noted in verse 14 that things were looking so promising for the salvation of these people after the miraculous sign of feeding uh, the 20,000. There's about 20,000 people there, 5,000 men plus women and children. After they had just been miraculously fed, the people confessed that he is the Messiah. And then from that moment on, all they wanted to do was be around him. It says, verse 14, When the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And then the next day, 
They're chasing after him, crossing sea to be around him. But then as we track through the chapter, after a bit of back and forth from the people in Jesus and Jesus presenting to them the gospel, that excitement, that eagerness, that pursuit, that discipleship that was once there is now gone. These people are withdrawing from Jesus. It's not what they thought they signed up for. Now it's important to note that these people were disciples of Christ. It says as a result of this many of his disciples withdrew. And a disciple is simply a learner or a follower. And for a time these people were willing to be learners and followers. It just turns out by the evidence of them leaving that they were superficial learners and they were fake followers. They weren't true disciples. They were false disciples. True disciples are people who believe in Christ savingly. They've committed their lives to Christ. They follow wherever it is that Christ leads. They've counted the cost and taken up their cross and their life isn't theirs anymore. That's a true disciple. A false disciple for lack of better words, is an unconverted church member. People who are just around Jesus. They're attracted to him for reasons. They may say that they're Christians. They may profess to believe. They may even act as a Christian, but they have never come to the point of submitting their life to the Lordship of Christ. That's a false disciple. And that's what these people are. And if we remember as we were making our way through this chapter, we were making a comparative list between true and false disciples. False disciples come to God with their own intentions in mind. They focus primarily on the physical. They will even go as far to try and use God. We went through like that and compared the traits of false disciples and true disciples. And this morning I want to continue on with that list today because I believe our text speaks volume to this issue of true and false disciples. And this is a pressing issue today because as our text states that it was the many who were false disciples and withdrew, I believe that it's the same today. It's not just a few that do this. This isn't a rare thing to take place. It's common. It's many. Matter of fact, in my short time of ministry, I've already experienced this in the lives of some people. People who profess at one point in time to be disciples, Christ followers, only to speak to them again and say that they no longer follow, they no longer believe. So there's many people who do, who will, who have professed to follow Christ, who aren't actually true disciples. And that is evidenced by the fact that they walk away. Which is why it's important to our understanding that we understand true discipleship. What is the nature of true discipleship? And apart from the obvious trait of somebody falling away, how do we know if someone is a true or false disciple? 
And some may turn their backs in months, others may take years, decades, before they decide they've had enough and they leave the faith. It's not always within the same week. And there are even some who are so deceived that they don't even know that they're a false disciple and they won't know until they pass on to eternity instead of being met with the glories of heaven, they're met with the terrors of hell. And such are the people mentioned in Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Again, it's the many. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 that we're to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. How do I know I'm not a false disciple? And that's where I believe this narrative is so key because it provides insight into this very issue right at this crucial moment where false disciples are leaving Christ and true disciples are staying. We're provided with insight into the core fundamental differences between true and false disciples of Christ. And though it's not an exhaustive list by no means, what we're going to do is we're going to identify four traits of a true disciple. Four traits of a true disciple so that we can examine ourselves. And we'll do that as we make our way through the text. So let's bring our attention to the text, starting at verse 60. Verse 60 starts with a therefore. And that's a very important word. That is to say that as a result of everything that Jesus has just preached... Therefore, and if we remember, Jesus has just preached a straightforward message to these people. He hasn't pulled any punches. He's told them that he has come down out of heaven and that he is the bread of life and he's going to die for the life of the world and they need to embrace that. They need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And now obviously Jesus wasn't teaching Cannibalism. He was using a metaphor to communicate to them that they need to take in the fact that he is God in human flesh and they need to accept by faith the reality of his sacrificial death. And we covered that all in depth last time. But that's why the therefore, so verse 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now they're saying this to Jesus about what he's just said to them. This is a difficult statement. And Jesus is the greatest preacher, the greatest evangelist who ever will be, and they're telling him that his teaching is hard teaching. Not that it's hard to understand. They had no trouble comprehending the message. They heard him loud and clear on that. It's just that what he said is not what they wanted to hear. They were only after more bread. And so this is a difficult statement. And they start to pull back. And they start rejecting. Because they came with self-centered motives and Jesus' message is not satisfying their self-centered wants. And I want you to notice this because this is typical not only of false disciples but unbelievers in the world in general. 
These people had absolutely no problem with the works of Jesus. They were enjoying his miracles. They liked that he had fed them and that he healed their sick. That's why they wanted more of him. And in all fairness, who wouldn't enjoy that? Who can be angry with someone who's just dishing out compassion and helping and caring for the poor and the sick and blessing the little ones? Nobody's got a problem with that. They're willing to accept that Jesus, but they don't like it when he opens his mouth and speaks. And this really is the crux, and this is where the divide happens between believers and unbelievers, true disciples and false disciples. It's all to do with the words of Jesus. And false disciples are willing to follow him for the works, but they can't tolerate the words. They refuse to submit to his words. To them, it's a harsh message. It's an offensive message. Who can tolerate this is what they're saying. This is not what we're after. This is not what we want. And in this type of predicament, this situation, as the people are grumbling at the words of Christ, I fear as though the response... <coughs> of most preachers today, would be simply to back off, to say, well, maybe they weren't just ready for that. And maybe we should just go in a little lighter. And we'll touch on this another time with these guys. Let's take it back a bit and try to recover what's been said. But look at what Jesus does, verse 61 and 62. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Jesus identifies that what he said is causing them to grumble and now stumble. And instead of dumbing down the message, he elevates it. Does this cause you to stumble? Does this offend you? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, if me telling you that I came out of heaven was a stumbling block to you, what then if you saw me return there and I sat on my throne? What would that do to you? If you saw all the angels bowing down before me, would that be even more of a stumbling block as you're looking at me? Would you believe then? I not only came down from heaven, but I'm going back. Now notice, Jesus doesn't compromise what he has said to these people. He's not an ear tickler. He's not just after large followings. If Jesus was just after big crowds, then this, is, this would have been his opportunity. He could have kept silent and just kept passing out the bread. He could have said, hold on, hold, 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 hold. That's not what I really meant here. This is maybe more palatable for you, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't compromise what he said. He elevates it. He preaches it to them stronger. He knows that to compromise his words would be to preach a false gospel and no one gets saved when a false gospel is preached. Now it's out of Jesus' response, his example here, to these people that I want to draw our first trait of a, of a true disciple. And that's a true disciple of Jesus follows Jesus' example and doesn't compromise on his words. 
on Jesus' words. True disciples don't compromise the gospel. The message that Jesus just gave to the people was an offensive message. He literally said to them in verse 53, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. That's an offensive message. The gospel is an offensive message. And there's things in the Bible that aren't politically correct. It's an offensive book. And false disciples will grumble and stumble at God's words and they'll compromise them to appease the people or even to appease their own difficulty and their own minds. True disciples submit themselves to the fact that the scriptures are the authority and if there's something in here that we don't like, or the world doesn't like, it's not the scriptures that need changing, it's us. We don't go back on God's word, no matter what, no matter how offensive it becomes to the people, no matter how much grumbling and stumbling there is. We're faithful to the words of Jesus. True disciples are faithful to the words of Christ. Now I fear there's some who have crept into the church that want to hide this reality that the Bible has some offensive things in it. They want to soften the edges of it and of the gospel to make it a more palatable Message. They don't think it necessary to preach about sin and hell and repentance. You know, the things that Jesus came to save us from. You know, we only want to focus on the positive and the love of God and His compassion and His grace. and Not bad things in themselves, but to take it out of balance, you miss the picture. We must preach the whole counsel of God. And true disciples of Christ don't change the message, no matter how offensive it is. We are, as Romans 1.16 says, not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. If we start altering things to make the message more appealing, to take away the offense, or to even just keep church attendance up, we're straying from the words and we're not following Christ's example. We can't do that. 2 Corinthians 15 says that to those who are being saved, we are the aroma of life. But to those who are perishing, we're the aroma of death. That's just how it is, being a true disciple of Christ. We bear the reproach Christ bore because he preached offensive things. John 7, 7 The world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. And so Jesus wasn't an ear tickler. Neither are his disciples. We don't compromise on what God has said because those people who are listening can't grasp it. Jesus goes on to testify, verse 63, about his words that he preached to the people. 
Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. These are spiritual, life-giving words that he's spoken to these people. And he's not going to go back on them simply because they're grumbling and they're stumbling. His objective isn't to please men. He knows what's in the heart of men. And it says in the next verse, verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. It's not his words that are the problem, and that's why they're stumbling. It's the own unwillingness to believe. You don't want to accept it. That's the problem. The problem lies in the people, in the false disciples. And Jesus isn't surprised at their response because it continues to say, verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. He knew even before he preached his message what type of response he was going to get. He knows where they're all at spiritually in this crowd. And he didn't shy away. And he's telling his disciples, his false disciples, you're unbelievers. You do not believe. I know where you're at, and you don't even believe. He knows exactly where everyone's at spiritually. He can see right through the superficial following. He looks past externals and he can see into the heart of man. He sees through the big crowds and the mast and the religious game that people can play. He knows where they are. He knows everyone in this room right here, where we are. He knows where... We're at spiritually better than we know ourselves. And so Jesus isn't surprised when the people don't accept his words, when they don't believe. No, it's not as though that took him by surprise, but it doesn't take away the hurt from the situation either because this is a painful situation at the height of his Galilean ministry to have this massive defection of people leave him but he's not going to recant the message. Verse 64 so says that he knew who it was that was going to betray him. So there's no surprise. This is all part of the plan. He knows. And so what does he do? Verse 65, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Now, we saw this back in verse 36 and 37, didn't we? When it says, But I have said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And when we were touching on that area, I believe that he's not only just teaching the crowd about God's sovereignty, but he's also leaning hard on God's sovereignty in the midst of this situation where his disciples are going and they no longer want to follow him, he rests in the fact that it's the Father who draws and it's the Father who grants and the Father has people who, when he gives them to him, they will come. As long as he's in his Father's will, then he's good. He's leaning hard on God's sovereignty. 
He would rather please God than please the masses, please the people. And it's in Jesus' example here that I believe we find a second trait for a true disciple. And that's true disciples lean on God. They find their approval from God, not from men. Even if it means rejection from others, even if it means pain, standing alone, a true disciple of Christ will not compromise, will not go back on Christ, but will rest in the sovereign purposes of God. True disciples only aim to please one, and it's not men. And so if what God says is offensive to you, then it's not God's word that is the problem. We're not changing that. Even if it means, verse 66, that many withdraw, true disciples don't change the message to accommodate men. They're faithful to the message because it's God who we're trying to please. We follow Christ's example, and Christ pleased his Father, not men. True disciples of Christ are God pleases, not men pleases. False disciples are men pleasers, not God pleasers. That's why they'll grumble and stumble and compromise the words. They won't submit to the Bible. It's not about what God wants. It's not about pleasing God. It's all about what they want. That's the trait of a false disciple. Christ put it this way, Matthew 10:37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And again, Luke 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, if your love for your family members exceeds your love for Christ, then you can't be Christ's disciple because you'll be wanting to please them more than you're wanting to please him. And true disciples aren't men pleasers. They're God pleasers. They find their approval in God. They rest hard and the purposes of God and God's affirmation, just as Christ did and just as he has done throughout this chapter in the midst of rejection. So verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. As a result of the words, the many walk away. They go. In John 8, 31, Jesus says this statement. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Again, it's the words. If you continue in my words, then you are truly disciples of mine. It's the words of Jesus that divide the true and the false. False disciples will stumble and grumble and walk away because of the words. True disciples won't compromise the words and they won't walk away. 
And that's the third trait of a true disciple that I want to highlight, and that's true disciples don't walk away from Jesus. They don't turn their back on Christ, no matter what. They continue with Christ. Wherever he leads, whatever he says, it's false disciples that shrink back, that fall away, that withdraw. Now that's not to say that there won't be difficult times and faith may waver, but there will not be that final walking away. 1 John 2.19 says that they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Now there are incredible warnings that the scripture gives to those who are in a position of walking away. People who only partially believe, who superficially follow, who have their own intentions in mind, who are false disciples, who know the truth, who are enlightened by the truth, and then reject. There are heavy, heavy warnings against doing that. To reject the gospel with knowledge full knowledge and having been partaker in it in some capacity is the most dangerous thing you can do. It's the most dangerous place for someone to be in. The writer of Hebrews calls this as trampling underfoot the Son of God. And how much severer punishment will the one who does that receive? It's Hebrews 10 verses 26 to 29 for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth is to slip back into your sinful lifestyle of unbelief. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no more sacrifice for sins for the person who rejects Christ. How could there be? How could someone be saved if they've rejected the only means of salvation? And then verse 27 in Hebrews 10 says that the only thing that awaits such a person is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. That's all there is for people who walk away from Christ, a terrifying expectation of judgment. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. That's heavy language. To insult the spirit of grace, to reject Christ after receiving the knowledge of the truth, is to insult the Holy Spirit and regard Jesus' blood as an unclean thing. 
And we need to heed this warning. You don't want to fall away if you're in some sort of limbo position of half-believing. You must commit. Hebrews 6.6 6 says that of such a person that it's impossible to renew that man to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. You would be far better off not ever having heard the gospel than to hear the gospel and partially embrace it and then walk away. Second Peter 2.20 For if after we escape the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and we are again entangled in them and are overcome the last state has become worse than, for them than the first. You'd be better to remain as just an unbeliever, ignorant than to know the truth and continue in a sinful lifestyle of unbelief. And so these are warnings against falling away. And true disciples don't fall away. True disciples were, will persevere to the end. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Now after the crowd decides to go down that path and reject Jesus and walk away knowing what they're walking away from. Jesus turns to his own disciples. Verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? Do you want to follow them? Do you want to do what they're doing? It's almost as though he's testing them. And it's quite a sad statement, really, out of the lips of our Lord. But Peter, speaking for the twelve, look at what he says. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What an amazing confession from the lips of Peter. Essentially, Lord, what you just said gave us life. We love it. When you speak, it's nothing but life that we're receiving. We're not going anywhere, Lord. He got it. And by the way, when he says, you are the Holy One of God, he's not just affirming that they believe that he's from God, but that he is God. The Holy One, that's a title or a name used for God in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, if you read the book of Isaiah, that's Isaiah's favorite name for God, the Holy One. And so Peter is saying, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are God. He's not just affirming Jesus' words. He's not just sort of nodding his head at them. He's listened, he's received life, and he's embracing them. He's believing them. 
And what a stark difference to the grumbling of the false disciples. They heard the same sermon. The responses of Paul are opposite. And this is where I want to focus on the fourth and final trait of a true disciple. The three traits that we've looked at so far are true disciples don't compromise Jesus' words. True disciples find their approval in God. True disciples won't walk away. And now lastly, true disciples embrace the words of Jesus. It's not just affirming the words of Jesus. It's not just not compromising them. That separates the true from the false. It's embracing them as life-giving words. Jesus' words, God's word, is life to a true disciple, as Peter has just confessed. And we could say that a true disciple is attracted by the very thing that a false one is repulsed by. That's the words. But a true disciple is not only just attracted to the words, but he embraces them. He appropriates Christ and believes in Christ. And they embrace him, what he's saying. You see, mental assent, just knowledge, just understanding, is not enough just to say, yes, I believe. James 2.20 says that even the demons believe. It's about truly embracing what Christ has said, taking him in to ourselves, as we saw with the bread of life. Trusting Christ with your life and taking him into yourself by faith and being obedient to his words and allowing him to change you. That's the difference between a true disciple and a false one. Now to bring this sermon to a close and to finish with some questions of self-examination. The last two verses, verse 70 and 71, Jesus brings chapter 6 to a close by mentioning Judas. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now why would he mention Judas? Why after Peter's confession does he mention that one of them is a devil? Why did he mention Judas? I believe it's because Judas is the archetype of a false disciple and he serves in a, as an example to us about false disciples. Notice Judas is among the true disciples even after the false ones have left. He's someone who's following Christ. He's in with the true disciples of Christ. Not only that, but Judas serves Christ. He takes care of the money. He even is a partaker in gospel ministry. He's active in Christian things. Yet he's never been born again. And Jesus knows that. 
All that to say this, I wonder how many Judases there are in the church today who are among the crowd. People who are here, who serve, who are active in church life, but have never actually surrendered their lives to Christ. We can be in church, but not in Christ. Right? It's possible. We can be here, just as Judas was there, among the people of God, the true disciples. We can be active in ministry, just as Judas was, on the church roster, but not actually be saved, not not actually be a true disciple. Judas serves as a prime example of that. It's not enough just to be here, just to be among the church, just to know, just to understand. True discipleship isn't about being one in the crowd. We can't pull the wool over God's eyes just by playing the religious game and turning up. And so I believe we all need to examine ourselves. Am I a true disciple? Have I truly responded to the words of Christ? How have I responded to the gospel? Am I still grumbling over some of the things Jesus has said? Have I embraced Christ? Am I trying to please Christ? Do I persevere with Christ? Do I embrace Christ? Do I love Christ? How have, have I surrendered my life to Christ? You see, it's not enough just to be in church. Judas, if he was here today, would be a member of church. But he's not part of the true bride of Christ. And we see that because he shuts Jesus out and eventually sells him for money. God forbid we ever shut Jesus out and trade him for anything. And so, there's no rush, we have time. We'll move now into our time of communion, which naturally is a time of self-examination as the Lord instructs us to examine ourselves every time we eat and drink in remembrance of Him. So just before we hand out the communion emblems, I want to say that self-examination is not a condemning act. I want us to know that. It's an honest evaluation of where I am at spiritually. It's being real. And know this, that it's at the Lord's table. It's at what that signifies, the remembrance of what he's done. That's where we find grace. When we remember what Jesus has done for us. If we find ourselves disqualifying ourselves and thinking perhaps I am a false disciple, then I'd encourage you, don't just sit there, repent, come to Christ and find grace. 
in what he's done. He's given his flesh. He was beaten, he was tortured and crucified for our sake so that we may be forgiven and brought into a restored relationship with God. Then on the third day he rose again and he ascended back to where he came from. And he intercedes now on his church's behalf. And if you're not part of his church, his true church, his bride, if you haven't embraced the gospel genuinely, then the invitation is there. Come. Come to Christ. Christ has paid it all. All you must do is believe. Embrace him. Receive him. Thank him. Love him. I'll just read 1 Peter 2, 23-25, then we'll hand out the communion. Then feel free to take it in your own time and the worship team will come up and finish with a song. 1 Peter chapter 2, 23-25 says that while he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for we were continually strained like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Have a hand.